Ian Bond is a former senior diplomat and British ambassador to Latvia and was a member of the British Diplomatic Service for 28 years. Ian is Director of Foreign Policy at the Centre for European Reform. His most recent appointment was as political councillor and joint head of the Foreign and Security Policy Group in the British Embassy Washington 2007-12, where he focused on US policy towards Europe, the former Soviet Union, Asia and Africa. He was posted in Vienna as deputy head of the UK delegation to the Organisation for Security and Cooperation in Europe, OSCE, from 2000 to 2004, working on human rights and democracy in the OSCE area and on conflict prevention and resolution in the Baltics and the former Soviet Union. His earlier career included postings in Moscow, 1993 to 96, and NATO HQ, 87 to 90. Ian is a specialist in the former Soviet Union and has deep knowledge of US foreign policy and its drivers. Welcome to the Silicon Curtain podcast. All our content is also available on popular podcast platforms like Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Please like and subscribe to help new people find our fantastic speakers. And if you like the work we do, please consider becoming a patron to support that work. Ian, welcome to the channel. Thanks very much, Jonathan. Nice to be here. Well, this is, I think, a very opportune moment to speak because as a Ukrainian victory becomes an ever more realistic possibility, we're also seeing topics like reconstruction, EU membership, NATO accession coming to the fore. So let's tackle them one by one. And I think Ukraine reconstruction has been a, a really big topic recently. And I understand that, uh, you know, you, you have some knowledge about this uh, London conference that took place, the major reconstruction conference. Yeah, I mean, the the um, the London conference was very much focused on trying to get the private sector to pick up some of the burden of reconstructing Ukraine. And I think certainly, you know, there will be some private investment. Um, but together with a, a colleague from Chatham House, Tim Ash, um, we put out a, a paper around the time of the, the conference looking at just how realistic it was to expect that governments would be able to shift the bulk of the task of paying for reconstruction onto the private sector. And we concluded, or perhaps more accurately, Tim, since he is the financial specialist, concluded uh, that really it was not realistic to expect that the private sector would take more than a small part of the um, the required uh, investment in Ukraine? Because uh, it's not just industry, is it? There is the reconstruction of infrastructure, energy infrastructure, urban infrastructure, but also uh, in an interview I did, I did yesterday with a, a sort of expert on uh, on sort of ecology pointed out that actually there's going to have to be a lot of, I would call it uneconomic investment in cleaning up the mess. You know, the toxic materials, the metals, the demining, there are some foundational stages before we even get to talk about the the fun stuff, which is the sort of new new economy. Yeah, demining in particular is going to go on for years and years, uh, and that's affecting a significant part of some of Europe's most fertile agricultural land. So that that's a, a huge issue in itself. Um, and I think you mentioned infrastructure. One should also mention hospitals and schools. The the Russians have 
targeted hospitals and schools deliberately over the last 15 months, um, an enormous amount of damage is going to have to be repaired. So, um, you know, the, the World Bank estimated in March that we were looking at $411 billion worth of reconstruction. Uh, that figure has only gone up since then. And of course, the war isn't over. And I think you made a, a very strong point in one of the articles. And we'll we'll put all the links to uh, to your articles and, and, and uh, you know, web profiles into this description. But Ukraine has to win the peace and everyone's running ahead of themselves looking at this whole reconstruction. But it's not just about ending the war. It's also about achieving its maximalist aims of regaining its sovereign territory, because surely if there is any doubt uh, if there's any sort of aspect of a frozen conflict about this, then there will be a great deal of hesitation uh, in investing in Ukraine. And a lot of these big plans won't come to pass because of the sort of uncertainty and risk of Russia reigniting the conflict in future years. I think that's right. And the experience of the last nine years has probably uh, will probably accentuate those concerns because what we saw was that even after the Minsk agreements of 2014 and 2015, uh, some military activity continued, albeit at a low level. So certainly close to the line of contact, um, you know, you, you did not want to be um, investing in anything that uh, you couldn't afford to lose. Um, and, you know, with that experience in mind, I think everybody would expect that if Putin or someone like Putin is still in charge of Russia, uh, peace settlement or not, there is going to be a lot of a lot of trouble along any line of contact. So that that is quite a problem. And uh, now this is going to be perhaps a, a, a tricky question here, and maybe there's a degree of prejudice inherent in it. But what is the instinct of uh, those who are in senior, you know, leadership positions, foreign policy leadership positions? And I would say, you know, your former profession, diplomats as well. I've been at a number of events where there have been, I think, some very senior uh, retired um, and in one case, really quite an elderly gentleman who says he was a former diplomat. Um, and the line of questioning to me was very instructive because there was a high degree of appeasement or the high degree of of, of wishful thinking about, you know, getting something in writing from Russia, getting him into an agreement, placing peace above victory um maybe for sort of short or medium term expediency and that attitude deeply sort of shocked me because it didn't seem to bear any relation to 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 reality how prevalent do you think is it uh, amongst sort of you know foreign policy decision makers to go for expediency over uh, a more let's say stable long term solution yeah, there's a spectrum of views. And I think part of the problem is that those who would describe themselves as realists in um, you know, international relations theory terms um, are more inclined to say, well, you know, Ukraine needs to compromise. It's the weaker party. Um, and therefore, you know, it should get the, the best deal that it can, because otherwise things are only going to get worse. Now, I, I think there's there's quite a strong th school of thought along those lines in the in the U.S. Uh, I think if you if you go into Europe, 
um, you won't be surprised that Eastern Europeans in particular take a very different view. You know, they have experience of um, Soviet, in some cases, Russian imperial occupation going back a long time. Um, it's not an enjoyable experience. And their view is if, if you leave the Russians in charge of any part of Ukrainian territory, you're also condemning the people who live there to considerable suffering under Russian occupation. Um, so I, I would not say that the the sort of um, the deal makers are in a in a majority, um, but they are certainly influential in some important Western countries. And I think what what's fascinating about the realist school uh, is that consistently there seems to be a tendency, you know, like it's a steering mechanism that overcorrects. There's a tendency to overestimate Russia's capabilities, overestimate Russia's strengths, in some ways buy into the imperial narratives uh, that have been prevalent you know, through the Soviet Union and the last couple of years, you know, that Russia is a great power. Russia naturally has to be this huge player on the world stage. And you shouldn't really oppose Russia because it's huge and it's strong and it's, you know, um, can't be defeated. If anything, the experience of the last uh, year or so has shown that Russia is extremely uh, brittle, uh, incapable of change and actually rather weak. And that, of course, is topped out by the uh, Prigozhin march on Moscow. I'm not sure what your your view there is on that overcompensation, as it were. Yeah, I, I, one should be careful because, you know, despite its weaknesses and military failings, which have been many and gross, uh, Russia is still occupying a pretty sizable chunk of territory in Ukraine. Um, you know, some somewhere, I mean, it lost a lot of territory in Ukrainian counteroffensive last year, but probably something in excess of 10% of Ukrainian territory is still occupied by, by Russia. So one shouldn't overdo it. But I think what the Prigozhin um, mutiny, if that's the, the best way to describe it. I mean, there's been an interesting debate about whether it's a, a mutiny, a coup or what, but let's call it a mutiny for now. Um, I think what that does show is um, that there is a lot of factional fighting in the Russian elite um, and that, that uh, indeed the, the system is quite brittle. Now, you know, there is now an interesting debate going on among Russia watchers about whether Putin emerges from this stronger or weaker. My view is that, that he is definitely weaker, because even though he has seen off this challenge, he wasn't able to do it until Prigozhin's flying column had made more than half of the distance from where it started to Moscow. You know, it covered something like 750 kilometers before it turned back and nobody really tried to stop it. And what that says to me is that there are a lot of people in the Russian elite, uh, even in the Russian military, who were sitting on the fence, who were waiting to see who was going to come out on top. They were not fully committed to, to Putin. They weren't coming out, and, and I think perhaps this was Prigozhin's miscalculation. He thought because you know, the army had suffered very heavy casualties because of the incompetence of its leaders, um, that probably you know, some of these people would join him on the, the drive up to Moscow. At least that's what I, I suspect. 
um, that that what started out as a relatively small column would be a sort of unstoppable force by the time it arrived in Moscow. Well, of course, that didn't really happen. But nor did any of the land forces along the route try to stop his his northward movement or the column's northward movement. So I, I would say that um, Putin is certainly not fatally wounded or anything like that. And I don't think it's inevitable that he will fall. Um, but I think that he has um, been less able to manage this elite conflict than previous elite conflicts where, you know, he has been the the great arbitrator able to punish some, reward others, share out the spoils so that, um, you know, the, the, the contest between different factions within the elite never got out of hand. I think it highlights as well a certain vacuum, doesn't it, in the Russian state? You know, it's because Russia has the trappings of, of modernity, a large military, etc. We tend to uh, look at it and in some ways interpret it through the lens of a, a sophisticated Western society. But I think the satirist Viktor Shindorovich was asked what what his biggest impression uh, of uh, of the uh, the mutiny was, and that it showed that the Russian state. Um, has been whittled away to the point where there really are no institutions at all. There's no real functioning independent judiciary. There's no parliament to speak of. There are propagandists and there are Putin. And there's little else in terms of the architecture that you would see in a functioning modern Western state. Um, this this is perhaps unsustainable, isn't it? Well... I mean, there are there are other societies which have managed to sustain similar lack of institutions coupled with um, highly developed repressive machinery. Uh, and that's sort of where we are with with Russia at the moment. So, um, you know, you can you can look at other states. Saudi Arabia might be an example um, where there are relatively weak institutions um, and yet the, the state just keeps rolling on um and i think you know one one could look at russia in in that way i mean it's a highly personalized uh, authoritarian system um i can't remember who it was who who had this sort of insight but um somebody quite recently said to me that the thing about russia is we we've, we've talked for a long time about russia having a power vertical uh, a sort of single chain of command running down from Putin. But actually what you have is a series of verticals that converge on Putin, but which are competing horizontally. And that's where I, I go back to what I said about Putin, the arbitrator. You know, in the past, Putin has used these, these different verticals of command, many of which are concerned with repression. You know, the, you've got the F FSB, you've got the uh, Roskvardia, the sort of National Guard troops, you have the military and so on. Um, um, and, and Putin has used all of these for controlling society. But indeed, the, the institutions that were there in a very nascent form in the 1990s um, have all pretty much been dismantled during Putin's 23 years in office. Well, let's turn to Ukraine, because I think one of the stark contrasts, really, of the last 30 years is the way Ukraine has emerged from that post-Soviet sphere. And 
I imagine, you know, you must have been watching that process uh, from from a sort of professional and interest point of view. And Ukraine has been evolving institutions and, and, and no one would say they're perfect and it's work in progress. Um, but certainly it has been building out the sort of trappings of a pluralistic, sophisticated, you know, technological economy. Um, I mean, first of all, is that your impression of what's been going on? But second, if we talk about EU accession, building the state out, building these institutions out are an essential prerequisite for EU accession, aren't they? Yes, they absolutely are. Um, I mean, I wouldn't overdo the optimism about the strength of Ukraine's institutions yet. Um, you know, we have seen in the past uh, the the Orange Revolution in 2004, uh, Euromaidan in 2014, um, you know, the, the overthrow of um, previous arrangements. And we've seen that um, quite often institutions that uh, have have a sort of a name that makes you think that they are something recognizable don't work in the way that you expect you know that was true in the past of the prosecutor general's office it was certainly true of the judiciary the court system um and so you are seeing the development of institutions you know ukraine now has a number of um of institutions dealing with the prevention investigation prosecution um and um uh, judicial proceedings to deal with corruption for example um but you know it's clear that we've got a way to go it, it's only a couple of months ago that the president of the supreme court was arrested for corruption um so you know it's a it's definitely a work in progress um, and the the EU has set out a number of steps that you, Ukraine needs to take or, or areas where Ukraine needs to make progress um, before it can move on to the next stage in its uh, its candidacy for membership of the EU, which ought to be the opening of accession negotiations. If we presume that Ukraine is able to achieve the victory that it set out to, that it returns the Donbass to its control and potentially even Crimea, um, and then focuses back on on civil society and the development of uh, of institutions, um, how much energy and, and and sort of commitment do you think will be from the Ukrainian people who have suffered a tremendous amount? And I think many of them are fighting for what they consider to be a better society. And there will be a degree of impatience if that isn't achieved. In some ways, it, it seems comparable to, to Britain after the Second World War and this determination to build welfare state and, and, and move away from the sort of more uh, you know elitist uh, concentrations of wealth, etc. Do you think Ukraine will be able to power through and harness that uh, energy of its people to continue progress? Ukrainian civil society is tremendously impressive. You know, I, over the years, I have met a lot of civil society activists working on democracy and the rule of law and fighting corruption and so on. Um, and, you know, they they are uh, enthusiastic, bright, committed, and that gives me some degree of hope. But at the same time, 
you know, I, I also know that the bad elements in Ukrainian society will not have completely disappeared. You know, the, the, the bad stuff in Ukrainian society, although quite often influenced by events in Russia or by forces in Russia, was not all exclusively um, put in motion by Russia. Uh, the 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 kleptocracy, um, the corruption, and so on, um, had had local roots as well. And what I fear is that um, when the war is over, if, as you say, progress in establishing a better society doesn't seem to be going fast enough, people, you know, ordinary people, will fall prey to populists to snake oil salesmen who will promise them a quick fix you know there isn't really a quick fix to rebuilding a country which has suffered as much damage as ukraine has suffered not just over the last 15 months but over the last nine years um and it you know it's going to take an enormous public information effort and diplomacy effort and um you know, a whole lot of love from Ukraine's friends as well to try to ensure that it keeps on the right track and that the the hope of people is maintained, even if the journey to, to get to where they want to get to is a very long one. And, you know, in the euphoria and the optimism around reconstruction and, of course, the, you know, tempting business opportunities that that uh, that that brings forth, sometimes there can be a sort of glossing over of the complexities and challenges of reality. And one of these challenges is that Russia ostensibly came to liberate Russian speakers and Russian speaking areas. And the horrific irony is it's those areas and cities that are most devastated. It's those areas which traditionally had heavy industry, which is almost certainly now irrecoverable from the flooded coal mines to the destroyed steel plants. Um, the very base of life and the, the raison d'etre for the cities in those regions has been totally decimated. Um, is there a note of realism here that, that, that Ukraine cannot recover all of the industries and territories uh, economically that perhaps would have been viable before, that there needs to be some sort of, you know, realistic thinking there, that if you're going to build a, a tech industry and so on, then maybe that's going to be more located in the western half of the country rather than the the east, which is now a wasteland of, uh, you know, Ruski Mir wasteland. I, I think this is a big challenge for Ukraine. Um because you can't abandon the east of the the country um and some of the mineral resources that you have there are going to be vital for ukraine certainly in the short term um you know ukraine is going to need coal and steel and um you know all, all the other things that it pulls out of the ground in the in the east um so one one can't just sort of write that off um but equally you can't go back to running soviet era coal mines and blast furnaces and so on um so this is in some ways a tremendous opportunity for modernization um as in you know parts of western europe after the second world war um 
you're you're forced to invest in modernization as well as everything else um but in the end you've got to treat the east of the country as just as much a part of ukraine as the west because it's very often the people from those localities in the east who have borne the brunt of the of the fighting both as civilians but also as soldiers you know a lot of the people who are doing the fighting in the east are from the east um so it can't just be that you know you sit in kiev and and you look at the devastation to the east and you think well god help us there's nothing much we can do about that we we'd better invest in the west um and i think this will be a tremendous challenge and it's going to be a tremendous challenge for the international community as well um as to what what kind of an economy you construct there and of course, many of the refugees are from those areas. I know from experience here living in Oxford, there are many, many families from Dnipro, Mariupol, and so on. They're, you know, their first language is, is is Russian, even though they do uh, understand Ukrainian as well. And, and many are moving to 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 become sort of fluent in speaking that um, these days. Um, but Ukraine is going to have to entice them back, isn't it? And that reconstruction process is not just about getting a viable economy. It's also about making sure the refugees come home, they see a future, and they want to invest in that future. And they won't do that without security. They won't do that without the conflict being resolved in some, you know, stable fashion. I, I think that's that's right. Um, you know, it takes a lot of bravery to to go back um, in circumstances where you're not sure whether this is all going to kick off again in a few years' time. Um, and I think the longer that the refugees are unable to go home, the harder it will be for them to uproot from wherever they are, you know, whether that's Poland or whether that's the UK. Um, and that also poses challenges. Um you know, many refugees probably will never go back. Um, some will. Um, and um, creating the conditions to enable as many as possible to go back is going to be a, a crucial task, both for the Ukrainian government and for its partners. And I think what, what Ukrainians have in their favour is... Uh... What I've observed in the last year is an extreme stubbornness. I think some some will go back just out of sheer bloody mindedness, which which would be uh, which would be good, and and that's a quality required there. But this whole question of security, I mean, this leads on really to the last question, and I was going to frame it in the way that uh, Ukraine really needs NATO accession and EU accession, not only to move forward as society, but also to provide these security guarantees to help it build up its military to, uh, to become almost like a sort of fortress on Europe's edge. But actually, that question is double-edged, isn't it? Because how essential is actually Ukraine for European security? I think it's shown over the last nine years that it is extremely important. Um, and I, I would agree that um, NATO membership is essential to Ukraine's security, but Ukraine's membership of NATO is also essential to NATO's security over the, the coming years. Um, and for the EU, EU membership is, is going to be essential to Ukraine's prosperity, uh, integration into the EU market 
is going to be um, a crucial part of Ukraine's development over the coming decades, I would say. And should it be fast-tracked, given this threat uh, from its eastern neighbour, could a fast-tracking of EU and NATO accession also perhaps drive reform and change in Russia and, and just give them that mental shove they need to tell them that this is over, it's lost, move on uh, and and get them to focus on their own society. Because it strikes me that if we drag this out, then it leaves an area of ambiguity. And we know that Russia responds to ambiguity and weakness with aggression. And we shouldn't be encouraging that. I, I would separate NATO and EU membership in that context. NATO membership can be fast-tracked. Uh, It it takes an act of will and courage on the part of the existing NATO members uh, because there is is certainly in Washington and in some other capitals as well a great nervousness that uh, if you offer Ukraine NATO membership while the war is still going on, you are dragging dragging NATO into a war with, with Russia. Um, now, I, I think this is not necessarily the way to look at it, um, but it seems to me that also it's a very it's dangerous because it, it says to Russia, if you keep the war going on, uh, then Ukraine will always be kept out of NATO. But the the NATO security guarantee is clearly something that Russia respects. Uh, it's why you know the Baltic states, which are much more vulnerable than Ukraine was, um, are still independent, even though from time to time, uh, Putin and those around him have made uh, noises suggesting that, you know, the the Baltic states only exist because Russia is generous enough to allow them to exist. Uh, The fact is that since they have been under the the NATO Article 5 guarantee, uh, there has been been no no real sort of saber rattling on their borders from from Russia, um, and I think you know the the same applies to to Ukraine. Um, you have to think about ways in which you can um, make clear to Russia where your red lines are and where the Article Five uh, commitment applies. But that's something that. In a slightly different context, we had to wrestle with in 1955 when West Germany was admitted to NATO, even though the German constitution, the the Grundgesetz, um, you know, referred to to all of the previous territories of of Germany. Um, so you know, there are there are ways to get round this. Although I'm not pretending that it is an exact parallel. And of course, um, a big, the, big chunk of Germany was occupied. So in a yeah. way, it's similar. Yeah. Um, the EU is a is a different kettle of fish um, because there are a lot of technical requirements to fulfill in order to be able to join the EU and to comply with all of the regulatory and other requirements. Um, and Ukraine is a long way away from being able to meet those technical standards yet. That's something which it will have to work on and which the EU will support it in working on. You know, if I look back to the um, the 2004 accession of new members, 
then there was a lot of so-called twinning between institutions in EU member states and institutions in the countries that were going to join. So you know, I was in I was in Latvia uh, just after that. There, there were still a few British um, officials working there, but I remember you know in particular uh, we had somebody from the National Audit Office working in the Latvian equivalent, helping the Latvians to understand you know, how you audited the use of EU funds and how you complied with EU standards for uh, the the um, for participation in EU programmes and so on. Um, so, you know, the, you, you can do a lot of that with Ukraine to bring it up to standard, but that's just something that is going to take some time. It's not something that you can just turn on overnight. Um, so I think the, the, the NATO membership can come first. The EU membership will follow down the track. And uh, the last question there really is, I mean, one of my Ukrainian speakers, who's one of the civil society activists you mentioned earlier, she said the great thing about this EU accession is that it gives, it almost creates a set of rails that you can then follow and doesn't provide, you know, deviation for oligarchs, for sectional interests. It makes it absolutely clear what the direction of travel is um and it gives government a certain sort of power to override these sectional interests uh with this with this sort of bigger bigger mandate so would you agree with that and are you overall optimistic that in time ukraine will achieve that accession so i think i'm more more optimistic about the latter than i am about the the former i mean what we have seen um with hungary to some, to some extent with Bulgaria, although it seems to be doing a bit better at the moment, to some extent with Poland, is that um, the, the conditions that the EU can impose on you before you join are in some respects more effective than the conditions that it can impose on you if you backslide in your rule of law or your democracy after you've joined. So um you know i think the meeting eu standards is a great lever before you join the eu it becomes a somewhat weaker lever once you have joined and that's something that i think the eu has become increasingly conscious of and has sort of worried about in terms of um future uh, future enlargement you know how do you actually ensure that a country doesn't just comply with the 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 eu's values and norms up to the day when it joins and then immediately start going off in a different direction once the uh once its accession is is ratified um so you know we'll have to wait and see but in terms of can ukraine make that transition i think it can it's not going to be easy and there will be forces pulling in the other direction um but it is because of those civil society activists uh, holding the feet of Ukrainian governments to the fire that I think ultimately Ukraine has a good chance of making it. And, and of course, uh, I mean, just a, a final thought on that is that uh, Russia may lose the war, but it doesn't mean it will cease to be a malign actor. And whereas a lot of the sort of propagandists get top billing and everyone looks at those because it's, you know, in a, in a ghoulish way, it's quite entertaining. But underneath it, Russia's real purpose is to attack and degrade 
institutions of its adversaries and primarily it sees its adversaries as pluralistic democratic societies. So we must assume that with all this work going on to institution build, we may well have malign actors like Russia who are working against that to dissolve corrupt and discredit institutions. Now, that's maybe an area where the EU and Britain could learn from Ukraine, which has been fighting uh, Russian aggression now for, well, it's going to be getting on for two decades. Yes, I, there's a lot of mutual learning to go on in terms of how you squeeze that sort of malign activity out of the system. I mean, I, let me be clear. I don't think that Russia is sort of destined to be an autocracy for the rest of recorded history. Um, uh, you know, I don't believe in a kind of national determinism. Uh, I, I think it is possible for countries to change, but it often takes some radical uh, defeat or some other you know, radical force to to change them um, and put them onto a different track. And I don't rule out that that may happen in Russia. It's just that at the moment there isn't much sign of it. Uh, and I think you know, Putin is likely to be succeeded by someone quite Putinist. Uh, so we are likely to, to face these sorts of challenges. Um, in terms of dealing with the the corruption and the influence operations that flow out of Russia. I think we've got better at it over recent years, but we're still not as good at it as we should be. You know, we we can see that um, some Russian agents of influence are still able to operate in the West um, and that some na Russian narratives, however implausible, still have their adherence in in the west and i think there is a constant battle both against the sort of disinformation um but also against the 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 efforts of russian intelligence services to gnaw away at our institutions from the inside um and you know we we must be constantly vigilant against that well, Ian, I think that's a good good place to end on. Um, and you know, this whole channel was set up really to try and understand changes in Ukrainian society and try to communicate, you know, their learnings from fighting uh, this Russian aggression. So I think that's a great place to stop and a great thought for the future on how we need to continue to invest in that. I'm very grateful for you for spending time this morning to share your insights. And uh, as events unfold, hope to get the chance to do that again. Yeah, it was my pleasure.